0: Cinema St. Louis's The Lens is now thetakeup.com, a place to gather after the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and fear not, all your favorite episodes of The Lens featuring all your favorite guests are still here in your feed, just a little refocused. Stay subscribed to us here for future episodes, and you can follow along for new ones and more at thetakeupSTL. Thank you for joining us on The Lens, a Cinema St. Louis podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, programmer and critic. I'm joined by my co-host, Kayla McCullough, critic, programmer, social media manager. Hi, Kayla.
1: Hi.
0: And Andrew Wyatt, critic, programmer, and managing editor of Cinema St. Louis's film site, The Lens. Hey, Andrew. Hello. While you can find all of our words at The Lens on cinemasaintlouis.org, Here we focus on one underloved or underseen film every other week. First up, we'll talk about what's now showing. Then we'll focus on Bound, Kayla's pick for our Queer 90s series. Then in the rules of the game, we're gonna quiz each other on the Wachowskis. Finally, we'll have just one more thing. Andrew, you and I watched everything, everywhere, all at once. And I'm going to i keep missing the middle part. Everything, everywhere, all at once. The Daniels do film starring Michelle Yeoh uh, this week. I have a feeling we feel differently about
2: it. How much do you love it? Um, right now, it's my number one film of 2022. Which is I did not necessarily, like, I just sort of expected going into it that I was going to enjoy it. It would be up my alley. I did not expect to be like, oh, I have my instant favorite from this year. Yeah.
0: I am going to say that I was with you for the first half. (laughs) And then I got really exhausted by it. Do you mind giving us just a little setup of what it is? Because I don't know that I'm capable of doing that.
2: I can try. The log line is hard. I think the log line for the film is actually a little bit misleading, but I can't even explain how it's misleading without going into some serious spoiler territory. Really, so let's just right. let's just say that Michelle Yeoh is a late 50s sort of nobody living in Los Angeles, running a coin mat with her husband and ha- dealing with a tax audit and just kind of muddling through life and having a lot of demands thrown at her from every different direction. And then things, strange things start to happen, and she gets sort of thrown into a sci-fi, lunatic sci-fi scenario where she's, multiple realities are all converging together, she's jumping into various selves of hers that exist in other parallel realities, it goes full bore like Rick and Morty craziness the The film, I think it's it's fair to say that the film formally, like is 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 full more
0: craziness, too, and in your initial setup, like that's how you would set it up. But the filmmaking from second one is so incredibly kinetic. And you're in this feeling of being pressurized by, you know, <laughs> culture, family, trying to like just get a paycheck, like everything, everywhere, all at once. You feel it in the filmmaking. And they're the, the Daniels are the team who made Swiss Army Man. I guess if anyone's familiar with it, if they haven't seen it, they've heard of it because it's the farting Daniel Radcliffe corpse (laughs) movie, right? But, uh, that kineticism is, is carried on throughout and they blend several filmmaking modes, I think by the time you're kind of fully aware of what the character's going through. I started to drift out of it to whereas I was fully in it before that. And it goes into some very philosophical places and just about the way we live our lives. It gets very big capital letters, philosophical, and I appreciated some of it. It ends up being actually very simple, um, for all of its kind of formal and narrative complications, it's sort of lovely by the end of it. But it's also almost two and a half hours of that. And, uh, in, in the second half, I felt it and I felt like it was spinning its wheels a a considerable lot, but I'm not mad at it. I I think it is very inventive. And I also think Michelle Yeoh, uh, I, I don't know, I would say never better, but she's always great, but this is such a showcase for her
2: as an actress, as a comedic actress. As a, a physical actress, yeah, I this is one of those sort of things that doesn't sound correct, but I guess it is. This is this the first American film in which Michelle Yeoh is the lead, which is sort of crazy to me, but um, I guess that's true now that I think about it. She's always sort of shown up as at best, yeah, like maybe Green a dual player. lead, yeah. yeah. Um, but and this her, is like, like her, which breed. is not to say that the other, the other like, uh, Lead, lead supporting-ish roles aren't great. hue um, quan um, who has basically come back to acting after something like three decades to, to be in this film. He's amazing. Stephanie Hsu, who plays their daughter, adult daughter, is great. I think all three of the leads are really, really strong.
0: And the grandfather's James Hong.
2: I'll have a review, a, a pretty lengthy review up, I think tomorrow, um, trying to list it early. So I'll have be able to read more thoughts about it. Um, well, tomorrow from when we're recording, I guess today, if we're posting this tomorrow um but so i don't want to like up
0: by the time this is up yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah i don't want to go into too much more detail other to say that i really loved it and right now it's uh probably my favorite film i've seen this year so far so we'll see if something else can unseat it but um i do think it's i i, I will say that i don't think it's for everybody like if it has a flaw at all in my view it's that i'm watching it going yep not everybody is gonna like this this is 100 percent my thing but it's i can see people going what what the heck is this
0: I can see that or it becomes a very big sort of not even cult hit. I'm thinking about like the films of Edgar Wright. It's right up that kind of alley. and
2: Yeah, I feel like one of the things I say in my review is that I think it's going to be heading for a respectable but middling box office and then absolute adoration for like the next few years. Like it's going to it's going to develop a Scott Pilgrim or Speed Racer type cult around it, uh, I think. It has
0: that feeling to it. Well, Kayla's favorite film of 2022, she reviewed last week. That's Judd Apatow's The Bubble. Are you mad mad at me for, for setting it up that way?
1: Yeah. It's about a group of actors slash like horrible people who are quarantined together on the set of a blockbuster film shot in the UK. And I'm not really sure how it happened or what happened there, but it's just like a total and complete mess. So Apato has had parodies before. Um he wrote Walk Hard. Uh so but it's just not it's just not it. Not funny. <laughs> just not really much of anything. Like there's not a lot to talk about just because it's just so bland and boring. It's way too long.
2: Your your review is the first review I'd actually read of it. And then I went out and read some other critics and like everybody seemed to echo the what you zeroed it on quickly, which is that like the COVID humor in it is really hackneyed and basic.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh I mean I guess it had promise conceptually um but it's just not successful on that promise. I was excited To see this but just like within the first like probably 20 minutes I was like no this isn't it this isn't this isn't good
0: (laughs) that's very disappointing but it seems like Netflix it's on Netflix right Mm -hmm. they must be aware of how bad it is because your review is the first time I've heard of
1: this (laughs) right yeah I know I mean you'd think with like an Apatow film everybody would be You know, it'd be hyped up. Everyone would be talking about it, but it just kind of went under the radar. And they dropped
2: it the same weekend as a Richard Linklater film, which people have been talking about.
1: Which is great. I saw that, or I watched that this weekend. Apollo 10 and a half. It's really, really, really cute. It is about a young kid growing up in Texas in the late 60s, and he lives in Houston, where NASA is like headquartered and it's basically just like his memories being played out leading up to the Apollo 11 moon landing
0: very cute so it's it's like and it's a rotoscope too right like waking life and scanner darkly am I wrong mm-hmm. there okay so it's like boyhood plus those plus space so pretty
1: cute. much yeah
0: all right I'm gonna have to check that out one I did get to see is rock bottom riser it's a an experimental documentary, just call it non-fiction filmmaking, about Hawaii and about the battle between man and earth and science and observation and colonialism. It's about a lot of things, but it is like this post-punk collage of the earth. It, um, Andrew, we talked about a few episodes fire of love that we saw at true false and how incredible seeing like magma flowing and exploding was and especially on film grain film stock this movie is is like that but you're on drugs and it's just that (laughs) i shouldn't say that it's just that it it encompasses all the topics that i'm talking about colliding them together and it's big galaxy brain and it's really well made and engrossing. The indigenous people of Hawaii are also subjects, but also the time and space continuum is a subject. I don't know if I'm selling this thing, but it is incredibly gorgeous. And it does have, like, it is so inventive that there is a Simon and Garfunkel music video in the middle of it. Well, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that I saw it on a screener. And I am really mad that that's the first way that I saw it because Webster film series is playing it on 35 millimeter and the film was, was made on film. So seeing it on its real format on a big screen, I would say that is highly advisable, Uh, but that's a rock bottom right, sir. And then Andrew, you had a new horror film that you liked,
2: but what was it called? Mommy? I'm not your mommy. You are not my mother. This is an Irish horror film. I believe it's available pretty widely on, to rent pretty much anywhere right now. Uh, Small film, first feature I believe from director Kate Dolan, one of these sort of domestic, small scale domestic indie horror films that's sort of popular right now, mainly about a teenage girl and her mother who has some mental health issues. And her physically disabled grandmother all sort of living together in the same in the same public housing, like council house. And mom disappears for a few days and then comes back different. So it's it's in that doppelganger slash pod person sort of subgenre of horror where somebody comes back wrong and something they're very clearly not themselves anymore. I don't want to spoil the film, but I, I think it's like pretty obvious from the jump that what what, what this film is doing is a, a genre that's pop, pop, popular right now. I feel like in horror film, which is take a mythical or folklore creature and reimagine it in a modern context and see how how it would look and sort of approach it from a realist, magical realist standpoint. So there, but it is horror. It is full horror. There's some really grotesque practical effects in it, but a lot of it is sort of rooted in that idea of your parent not necessarily being the person you think they are having going through a personality change and so forth um, it's just really effective it's I thought it was sort of good and then I the more I sat with it the more I realized just how strong it is Kate Dolan both writes and directs it's just a really solid sort of 90 minute horror film no no you know no notes it's a good it's a good good creepy little thriller
0: very cool well I think the last thing we're going to talk about in now showing is something I have no notes for, <laughs> but have many notes about, it's a pong where Satakun's latest film, Memoria, is finally coming to St. Louis. Well, again, because we played it at Sliff, um, but it is now touring nationally. As we've discussed on this podcast, it seemed to stall there for a minute, but now it is going to be opening at the High Point on April 8th. It'll also be playing this summer at the Arcaden the outdoor theater for one night only. So that is definitely a different experience. Tilda Swinton has a condition in which she hears a boom in her head. She goes on a mission to figure out what the boom is. She is in Colombia. She finds a person who takes naps in which they die. She shops for a new flower container she may or may not have a like romantic flirty relationship with two men who are the same man it is one of the most beautiful films about just existing and and time and being aware of your body and space and time that i've ever seen we haven't talked about this i don't know that you two
2: like it at all i like it okay i it's,
1: like it okay it, it is not,
2: not as yeah. much as some of his other films I'm, I'm not rapturous the way you are but i do, i do think it's a good film and it's doing a lot of really fascinating hypnotic things
1: i think i need to watch it how it was meant to be seen
2: did you do you watch
0: it on the screener? okay yeah no. i saw it at the memphis film festival let me tell you that saturday night late I saw Drive My Car, and then I woke up and saw Memoria. So, uh, yeah, just like 24 hours made for Josh Ray. It is like all of his films. You've really got to get on its wavelength or hop off. Um, I saw it with a friend who is not accustomed to his films or filmmaking, and he was just itching to go. Especially when, you know, there's 10 minutes where Tilda Swinton is just like staring at a stream. It is the first film that he's made with like a star, and I think she has great purpose in it. It's very funny; she's very funny in it too. There's a point where she does a magic trick that just like sealed Tilda Swinton in my heart forever. Um, not like she wasn't already there,
2: but she feels like a really good fit fit for him as a director too. Like if you're gonna pick an English language star to put in yeah. to put in one of his films, yeah, Tilda seems like a really great choice, and she was, she is.
1: Yeah. And especially because it's, I mean, I think it's one of his most accessible films. So I hope that people will be able to see it the way it was intended and also that it will play at smaller places and not just the large places where you might not be able to experience it.
0: Um, But I'm definitely going to see it again as soon as possible. Sounds like Kayla and I are gonna go see <laughs> memoria at the high point and we will see you there listeners so before we do that can we talk about Kayla's pick in the queer 90s series that is the wachowskis bound
2: it was unreal all night long i listened to that
0: sound
1: Trust me. I had this image of you inside of me.
0: Like a part of me.
1: You're asking me to help you fuck over the mob. Violet, these people are serious.
0: Every episode, we focus on one underloved or underseen film. I do it in mini series. This mini series. We are saluting the queer 90s in conjunction with QFest St. Louis, which is April 29th through May 5th at the Galleria Six Cinemas, uh, along with some other events throughout April, including at the Webster Film Series. QFest is co presenting two Simon Ling Restorations as the Viva Lemoore on April 12th, and then Goodbye Dragon in April 17th. That's just a good week of movies at Webster. Rock Bottom Riser is playing it on April 15th and 16th on 35 millimeters. And then on April 22nd and 23rd, Opera Theater St. Louis is doing their Harvey Milk Film Festival, and I will be there introducing the Times of Harvey Milk, the incredible classic documentary, and Gus Van Zandt's Milk. The Academy Award winning film starring Sean Penn. And then we've got a QFest party. We're going to be talking about this for the next month or so. So I will move on and <laughs> ask Kayla why she picked the Wachowskis bound, other than it's synchro.
1: Well, like The Living End, it's very noirish. Yeah. It's tense, like he ran all the way. And I believe that the Wachowski sisters are one of the only LGBTQ plus filmmakers to consistently receive such enormous franchises and and money. And I don't know what other LGBTQ plus uh, filmmakers have had that same opportunity, like multiple times in a row. They wear their heart on their sleeves. They're very hopeful. They take risks and they don't play it safe.
0: On top of that, it is also a seminal film for but queer filmmaking and queer film stories at the time uh, because the, Jennifer Tilly plays Violet and Gina Kershawn plays Corky, and they are like relationship goals. Wait, am I a Corky or a Violet? Who knows. <laughs> Probably a Violet. Probably a Violet.
1: We're probably all Violets.
0: Oh, yeah. thanks. <laughs> the three of us are Violets. Probably. probably. Violet probably. saves the day. And also, spoiler warning, we're going to talk about Bound, and this is a spoilerific film. film. Uh, twists and turns abound.
2: Ooh, abound. <laughs> okay. And um, I'm... Well, let me see. Let me see here, though. Corky okay. can do plumbing. I can do a little bit of plumbing. Corky okay. can do... Uh, painting, I can do a little bit of painting, but that's about it. Yeah. So yeah, probably Violet.
0: So we're all Violets. Well, it's all good that we're none of us are Caesars,
2: (laughs) Yeah,
0: which is Joe Pantaleano. Anyway, I watched it again, probably about six months ago and it was perfectly fine to watch it again because it is such a pleasurable and sensual and, and not even that it's filled with really hot sex in it. (laughs) Just the filmmaking itself is very sensual. and
1: So tense. Like It's so
0: tense. tense. And so, Andrew, what was your relationship? What is your relationship
2: with Bound? I have a memory that I saw this film before the Matrix series took off. And I'm not 100% about that, but I have a memory of seeing it on VHS in college. And then revisiting it a few years later with a film club. And then, so this would be my third time through it. Um, and I, can I just say like, I remembered the sort of proto matrix styling of it. Uh I remembered the sort of twisty tense plot, but I did not remember how sopping wet horny this movie is.
0: It's so horny. (laughs) It's so horny in the best way imaginable. And we can talk about it's, Sort of symbols, and like this is a film that starts on an extreme close up of a light pole in a closet that looks like a sex toy and throughout has allusions, and it's even called Bound, like has allusions to sadomasochism, role playing, and even though it's not as sort of explicit as what I'm saying. It is very much about the sexual lives of these women, even to the extent that it is very much about bodies, the way bodies move, the way bodies break, the way bodies intermingle. It is horny as a concept, (laughs) this film. So uh, I watched it for this recording, rewatched it with a commentary on, so someone else has to do plot because I don't remember what happens. I have no idea. I was just looking at pretty pictures.
1: So it's the story of Corky and Violet, an ex-con and a girlfriend of a mobster who fall in love behind Violet's um mobster boyfriend. boyfriend? boyfriend? Yeah, like... uh, his name is Caesar. Um they come up with a plan to rob him of the two million he's supposed to be in charge of delivering um, and frame his rival for the theft.
0: That's like the simple way of putting it, right? Even though when you're in it, it, it feels a lot. They have a way of making things feel very complex, but they're actually very simple and very easy to follow along. It's a kind of a typical noir, but the, the thing is the uh, female characters in it have both assumed the femme fatale identity but are also using that to their benefit someone's idea of what a woman should or could be is Mm -hmm. ultimately how they prevail in the end which i don't don't, we're three cis people we just throw this out there so as far as talking about this in terms of the filmmakers transness i don't feel equipped to kind of make the allegory but i think That it is there talking about gender roles, how amorphous they can be, bodies and sort of transmutation they can go through. And again, that's not really my place to talk about it, but it does definitely feel like a queer text beyond the idea of two hot women having sex.
1: Yeah, it establishes the romance, but then it kind of, like, we kind of, Put that to the side um we don't know much about the mob but all we want like we're basically watching to see what happens to them and not you know what happened like we're not watching for the mob or
2: Mm -hmm. anything
1: like that like we just want to know if like the two are are, like will make it out unharmed and if love will will win
0: it's revolutionary in this act of making two women two queer people, heroes, and what you're saying is that you're, you know, you're in it with them. There's at no point, do you feel sympathy for Caesar? (laughs) Even though Joe Pantoliano in this movie is really, really good. (laughs) But he's incredible because he's a skis ball and a, a total asshole, but you're always on their side. And the trick of it is because it's a noir, you think those two are going one of them is going to double cross and triple cross the other no at no point in this film do corky and violet are, are they on opposing sides they're in it together
2: which is but, well but i will say one thing i've noticed this way through is how the film does create a little bit of tension around that question oh absolutely and, yeah yeah the, the, there's really fascinating thing where it's Corky who plants the seed in Violet's head of her own fear of betrayal. So she says there's a key scene sort of midway through where Corky sort of lays it all out. Violet's starting to like, the plan is starting to coalesce, Violet has a plan. She's come to Corky with it. And Corky is sort of hesitant because she's been burned before by a partner. And you know she sort of expresses her own view that like, you're, I have this fear that you're going to hang me out to dry. Like, I love you, but I also just met you. And this is a lot of money, and there's a lot of a lot of stakes here. So she expresses her anxiety, but mm-hmm. that's but what ends up driving the plot and a lot of the characters' moment-to-moment action in the second half is Violet's anxiety about Corky doing the exact same thing to her. So it's almost mm-hmm. like Corky puts the bug in her brain, and now she can't stop thinking about like her. She has anxiety about what's going on, on the other side of that wall in that apartment but their cookies are right. still, there, still there. So right. I thought that, I just noticed that like the first time, third time watching it, that they kind of flip that around. It's Corky who presents it, who voices it, but then it's Violet who ends up acting on that anxiety.
0: And then there's yeah. the key moment when I think each of them realize that they are, sorry, bound together. <laughs> when yeah. there's that really beautiful shot uh, where the camera, who is at first? Violet is on the phone with Corky, who's in the other room as they're, you know, kind of finalizing everything that's happening and they're also about to get caught with where she puts her hand on the wall and then the camera goes up over the wall and shows that, uh, Violet is holding her hand in exact same position. And at that point, it, it definitely feels like all of these kind of suspicions and red herrings that the filmmakers and Corky and Violet are positioning in the narrative have kind of gone away and now they have to survive together because they're about to get totally screwed in the worst sense. One thing that's really interesting about this film is this wasn't going to be their debut film. They had signed a deal with Warner brothers to a two picture screenplay deal. And the first of which is the film assassins uh, with the, that's where we get the gift of Antonio Banderas in front of the computer and that's where um, <laughs>
2: it's most significant cultural contribution to that's its only 22.
0: right. And that Julianne Moore is in it, someone yeah. else is in it. Look, I don't, I don't know anything about assassin except that they wrote it. And then they brought to Joel Silver, who was an exact at Warner Brothers, one of the great kind of producers of eighties, nineties and the aughts in Hollywood. And they brought the matrix to him and no one could make head or tail of it, but they thought this seems cool. I don't know that we should invest in these filmmakers. So can y'all go make a film and prove to us that you can do it? So bound is the film that they made independently uh, from independent financing and I don't mean this in a sense of you can, you can feel them trying, I mean this in a sense of everything is on the fucking line for these two women and you feel it in the filmmaking in that every single choice in a limited budget. This is a film that's mostly like two rooms and goes outside a couple of times. You can feel that they're maximizing their budget. They're maximizing this very small space that they have and doing innovative and very creative things within that in order to prove their worth as filmmakers so it's a film that doesn't waste a beat
2: now the screenplay I I guess again I sort of noticed things that I didn't notice years ago the screenplay is just so tight like it's a good I think it runs like an hour 50 hour 40 something like that yeah but it 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 feels like an 80 minute movie because it's 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 so tightly scripted yeah that's funny you say that is I I put it in to rewatch
0: it. I was like, okay, I have an hour and a half. And then I just, I was, I had looked at the clock at one point. And I was like, wait, this movie's a lot longer than I remember it because you do get so incredibly involved in these two.
2: I guess the temptation when you watch them from today's perspective is that you can see sort of the proto, what we might call the proto matrix elements in it. There's even like little things in the sound design that were sort of, if we want to put it another way, we're recycled in The Matrix and use there as well. But the, uh, the use of sound, the use of music, the way that the camera moves around three-dimensional space, the sort of interest in very, very 90s tactile details. Although, even though this film was made in the 90s and presumably takes place in the 90s, it also has a weird out-of-time feeling to it partly because it's echoing back to those no, a lot of noir tropes. So enthusiastically, it feels almost like a retro film. But yeah, you can see a lot of that. I mean, I think from the very first shot, which is sort of this very showy camera moving through a woman's walk-in closet where we see Corky's been tied up. This is sort of a f- flashback, flash-forward film where we see we come in and media rest and then immediately flash back to figure out how we got there. Corky's sort of tied up and gagged in... Violet, I guess it's violet. It's supposed to be Violet's closet, and this camera sort of moves down, like you said, Josh, down the pull chain, past the hat boxes, through through the edges of the clothes, painting across the shoes, till we finally rest on Corky. And it's just a very showy shot with. There's some sort of flash forward and flashback dialogue echoing in and out. It's just like you said, Josh. It, I don't really want to call it, I think there's a temptation to maybe look at it and call it, you know, was this a proof of concept for The Matrix in some way? But it, it, it works so well on its own, I, I, I don't want to say that, but I do feel like you can see them getting a chance to get behind the camera and like you say, sort of putting it all out there, putting everything on the page. And I think sometimes with some first-time filmmakers that can be bad because you get the through everything at the wall effect, I mean, this is an insanely confident first film. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, the the confidence is astounding. And that the confidence of building a 30-foot tall closet for your opening shot, they (laughs) built that. It's actually 30 feet tall. And to know exactly what sort of lens you would need to film, to, to get the scope of vision for, you know, the kind of perspective that you want and to understand that Early. So your very first film. It's it's truly um, a marvel. I'm gonna say it, and it probably wouldn't surprise anyone who knows me or has listened to this. I like this movie more than the Matrix. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Do I have to apologize for that, Caleb?
1: No. You know, I don't think so.
0: Good. I'm not going to. I take back all my sorries. even though Jennifer Tilly had an academy award nomination these are two actresses who are sort of regarded as actresses who you would get for either bit parts in big films um or or, or what
1: or like moms
0: <laughs> right or kind <laughs> of sex pots like, oh, yeah, the mother or the whore figures, right? Yeah,
1: I was thinking, like, now, like, I, oh, yeah, I, like, what is she like? What is Jennifer Tilly like been in? I mean, recently, well, she's, she's, a,
2: she's involved in the Chucky show now. Like, she's yeah. pitched her wagon Congrats to that. Tiffany, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: She's also yeah. A, a world series of poker champion, so she's got a lot going on. Yeah. she's really making the money. G- Gershon is still acting, she was most recently in woody allen's latest movie so, <laughs> so she was she
2: goes. was in blockers too
0: which
1: i like wow. oh yeah that's right. right
0: she was so good in blockers she's so funny but jennifer tilly oscar nomination for a woody allen movie but was still sort of she's got this voice even that role is funny is like a good bit of casting because she's playing like an airhead gangsters mall um and that's what people would think of because Jennifer Tilly's voice and the, you know, her appearance and Gina Gershon is coming hot off of Showgirls. <laughs> so if you're like in a video store and see this, you think it is like showtime, soft porn. And even the sex in it isn't explicit. They got Susie Bright to come in and be like a sex consultant on it. And Susie Bright is a renowned, like sex positive feminist and, um, queer theorist. And she got in there and really modeled everything as she would see it, as she would experience it. And so it's, it's a very corny movie, not only just like visually in the way the camera moves and in the sort of sweatiness of it all, but that there that you've got two of the great 90s sex pots on screen together
2: and there's like a a crazy amount of visual innuendo but also like this not disguised at all like take classical sort of noir pi versus the femme fatale dialogue and crank it up like another half notch and where every line is just sounds filthy coming out of these characters mouths um in the best possible way
0: too right yeah
2: i mean i mean i made a note here that Like, there's a line that, like, I just had to stop it and, like, go, oh, my God. I can't believe they got away with this. It's a sign where Violet's reminiscing about her father, but she's talking to Corky about, like, Corky's handiness around the house. He says, my dad would just, you know, open it up and tinker around in there. (laughs) It's like, oh, my God. Andrew, uh, I'm blushing. I can't believe you said that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: But it's a, it, it's filled with innuendo and the sexiest thing. And they talk about this in the commentary uh, on DVD. There's a commentary with the Wachowski sisters producer Susie Bright is in the room and very late. This is early DVD, but they're talking about recording for Laserdisc very late into it. Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon walk into the room. They're like, what did I miss? Uh, but it is, oh, joke. Pantoliano's on it too, Joey Pants, as everyone loves to call him, but they're talking about, wait, what was I talking about? Oh, the hands, how the sexiest thing in that, like you've got bare breasts and bare bottoms and like, you know, fingering and all this stuff. The sexiest thing is the hands, which is how you transfer energy from one person to another, or how you are able to connect with one person or another. And the whole idea of being bound is it has this promise of sadomasochism, but I think it's got implications of talking about the opposite and being bound to roles, right? And breaking free from those roles. And there is a literal moment where these two are tied together with rope, but the w the way they find their freedom ultimately is by playing with what's expected of them, understanding what's expected of them and subverting that. And I think that is just key to it, the film's innate queerness, even if, you know, we never knew anything personal about these two filmmakers at the time. We didn't know that these were two trans women, but it, even if you didn't know it, it's beyond again, beyond its depiction of, you know, a female on female
2: sex. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things going on in terms of like gender signifiers and how they are used or subverted. It's a lot of the plot uh, energy is driven by like typical head on hand masculine rivalry between uh, Caesar and like the mob boss's son. Who does <laughs> I forget? Chris Maloney. Chris, Chris Maloney. Who is he playing? What's the character's name? Johnny. John. Johnny. There, there's like. And and there's something interesting there, too, about how, like, these women's plan to get out is being complicated and screwed up by this dumb male rivalry. that isn't really about anything. It's about two mobsters who, like, have disliked each other from the jump, and their rivalry is sort of boiling over.
0: And the one thing that sets the plot in motion, or at least enables them to do this plot behind them, is... Caesar walks into Violet's apartment when Caesar and Violet, I'm not, when, Corky. what's her name? Corky and Violet are like making out hardcore on the yeah. couch. Caesar pops in, they separate, and Corky pops up. But Caesar, when he comes in, goes bat shit crazy when he sees uh, Gina Gershon's back. You know, she's wearing the tank top and the jeans and everything, goes batshit crazy until she turns around and it's a woman. And he says, Oh, never mind. I shouldn't
2: be worried about this woman at all. Right. And then that goes back to what you were saying about the idea of being bound to roles and how you can, that is both like imprisoning, but also you can use that to your advantage sometimes to hide in plain sight. People expect certain things or don't expect certain things of you. So that right there keys us in on. Like that very early scene of him mistaking Corky for a man in low light is, you know, it's Gina Kershaw. It doesn't look anything like a man, but it, it's it's a signal to both Caesar's obliviousness and the theme, the idea of you can use the limitations that are forced on you to your advantage to to turn it around and become, turn it into a smoke screen or a cover for something that you're doing.
0: Or even to become yourself. they are filmmakers right. who are about you know, identity, transformation, yeah, yeah. yeah, transformation of identity, the agony and the ecstasy of it.
2: I made a note of a of a line that stood out for me as not being a part of the typical sort of noir pattern of the film, which is after, I think after they have sex for the first time, Corky says, I can see again, which to me felt like mm. a very sort uh-huh. of indie, indie drama line. It didn't necessarily fit in and not in a bad way, but it sort of hinted at the way that this relationship in some ways it's transformative and nourishing in a way that neither of these women have had before.
1: Yeah. Like even at the end with Violet playing the like really upset, almost like widow, cause she doesn't know, you know, she doesn't know what happened to him. And then at the end, like we see them together. I
2: mean, like right to the end, she even uses like a, a kiss on Mickey's mouth. I think she gives yeah. him a, a brief lip kiss like to just sort of seal the illusion of her as the sweet grieving widow and like and he buys it a hundred percent
0: i love the point when joey pants figures out that jennifer tilly is a lesbian he kind of freaks out and he's like oh my god i can't believe that this has happened to me i'm such a bad stupid man yeah you're bad and stupid and you're about to die in a pool of paint as you bleed out on the floor in a god's eye point of view that's one of my favorite shots in this yeah
1: especially with yeah just like the the white paint like yeah
0: (laughs) yeah i mean they can really do some complicated interesting choreography but it's often often a very simple thing in their films that really hooks me think of the the just drop of blood from the shower curtain that yeah. it's like, oh, uh, Cassie hiding in the shower in Euphoria.
1: Yeah.
0: Andrew, you don't get that because like, you yep, refuse yep. to watch it. But. <laughs>
1: and you're well, you know, on, like on the edge, because like, you don't know if he like if the officer will come out and he'll be caught or right. what. You don't know.
2: The 90s was like this golden age for this certain type of like crime indie picture. Yeah. Like, it, I also was thinking a lot about Shallow Grave when I was watching this, mm-hmm. like, and just then the, just like, incredible tension is, is like, the, if the first half of the film is defined by horniness, the second half of the film is defined by this, like, white knuckle, oh my God, are they going to get out of this or not, tension.
0: Which sounds like horniness to me, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that.
2: well, that's it's a different, yeah, different kind,
0: <laughs> of, different kind of tension. And The Last Seduction, John Dahl's The yeah. Last Seduction. Uh, Red Rock West by John Dahl, like the neo-noir was peak and it, I don't know, did it end with this? I think Christopher Nolan dips into it, but his films are the opposite of sexy, uh, something <laughs> like Memento. I think this might be the peak of all of it. And it's just, if you haven't seen it and you're a, a fan of the filmmakers, you owe it to them and to yourself to go back and watch it. It's streaming on Showtime if you have a subscription right now, but it's also available to rent on all major platforms.
1: When Violet shoots Caesar and he's just, he falls into the to the white paint, and <sighs> then we see that, and it's just, like, so, I don't know, like, you're just so proud of them and the, of her and them, and then you can see it, like, all just contained in that one area.
0: You're right. It's It's all their work. Oh, my God. Kayla, you have, give me goosebumps. It's all their work laid out in one image
1: and they're
0: great success.
1: Everything that they were, you know, trying for or hoping for, it's just all right there.
2: I just want to like reinforce just how, again, the filmmaking here is so confident. The the production design to detail in like Caesar's apartment is great. Even down to things like the choice of wallpaper and different shots the art that's on the walls, but it's also in the little details, like blocking and, and character business. There's a moment in when they're, the mobsters are beating the crap out of Shelley. I think it is the, the guy who was stealing, you know, skimming money from the mob, gets, getting his head in, in a toilet and eventually gets his fingers cut off. But there's a moment where Christopher Meloni's character, Johnny, has been like pummeling him. And then... In a wide shot, we see all the sort of mobsters gathered in this cramped bathroom. And he's not the focus of the action, but I really appreciated the little moment where Maloney walks over to the sink where we realize he has taken off all his rings before he was way started wailing on this guy and he methodically puts them back on. And it's just, it isn't emphasized, it isn't even shown. it's It's in, it's like wide shot. So you're not, if you're not paying attention, you can't see it. But that kind of attention to detail. In like blocking in direction is so it it speaks to the Wachowski skill, like right out of the gate. They knew exactly what they were doing. It's a great character detail. Like he would do that because he cares a lot about his appearance and his jewelry, and he knew that it would be it would hurt him if he was trying to punch somebody with those rings on. So, like it it that's the kind of thing I love when you you can tell a director is paying that level of detail to everything that they're putting on screen.
0: My favorite small bit is. Then they adopt the whole Kislowsky's red thing where you see the the telecommunication and follow the wire. You see a telephone call go through a wire, and the camera follows along the telephone line, but then follows a, a knotted loop in it <laughs> yeah, too, and then continues. It's <laughs> great. like y'all didn't have to go so hard, but I'm <laughs> glad you didn't. All right. Well, it sounds like we're all knotted up and tied up for bound. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> no, you did how... <laughs> I did do it. I did do it. So why don't we go on and let's talk about the Wachowskis a little bit more in the rules of the game. Every episode I put Kayla and Andrew through some torture. Now, sometimes they torture me too, but this one. We're going back to Did You Know, our infamously not fun game from our second episode, Kayla's Pick of Cusp, when I grilled them on the documentaries of 2021. I think this one's a little easier. All of the answers are Wachowski films. I've got eight of them. What we're going to do is bounce between Kayla and Andrew. I'm going to give them one fact from IM, their IMDB pages. They get it wrong, I'll move to the next person, they get it right, they get a point. So I've got three facts about eight Wachowski films. One is music related, one's production related, and the other one is keywords listed on the IMDb pages. So if I were to say we were playing this about Alfred Hitchcock, one is music related that Bernard Herrmann did the score. Another is production related is that it's in black and white and keywords would be mommy issues, stabbing in the shower, and Janet Lee is awesome. What would that be? Psycho. Psycho. Great. Yeah. I was going to say lifeboat. <laughs> I want to see lifeboat, but in a shower, it's called bath. Tub. I hate that. I'm c- All right. So we're going to start last time we started with Andrew. This time we're starting with Kayla. I'm going to give you the music fact about this Wachowski film. It is a song called Hell Club, written by Tom Tickfer, Johnny Klemek, Reinhold Heil, performed by Pale Free. Which Wachowski film is that?
1: I'm just gonna make a guess and just say Speed Racer.
0: That is incorrect, Andrew. A production-related clue the second live action film to be released in both regular and IMAX theaters at the same time.
2: Um, I'm going to guess
0: the third Matrix, Matrix Revolutions. You are correct. Oof. That was a stab in the dark. Very good. Keywords brain in a vat, blindness, and war on machines. Good. All right. So, Kayla, you're up first on the next one, too. This is the music-related one. Another one. Another one. The okay. song is Free Bird, written by Alan Collins and Ronnie Van Zant, performed by Leonard Skynyrd.
1: I have no idea. Jupiter Ascending.
0: Nope. <laughs> so, production to Andrew. According to producer Joel Silver, this movie was largely shot on green screen in 60 days. It can't be Speed Racer, can it? It is speed racer 60 days.
2: Wow. Dang.
0: You know, earlier I said that bound was my favorite Wachowski film. I was lying. It is definitely (laughs) speed racer. And I'm not joking. (laughs) That movie's kind of a masterpiece. Um, keywords, especially when you hear these keywords, knee-high boots, character name and title, and corporate cry. All right. Next one. I'll do production. Blank told Collider Movie News that he was not in this blank movie. When questioned, he replied that someone would have to ask the Wachowskis because he didn't have an answer for that.
1: Well, I haven't said Cloud Atlas yet, so I'm just going to say that.
0: It is not Cloud Atlas. (laughs) The Andrew Music, White Rabbit, performed by Jefferson Airplane it's the matrix resurrections you got it
2: that has to be lawrence fishburne said that right
0: uh larry fishburne yeah (laughs) very seems not happy about not being in the resurrections but maybe once he saw Uh, it he understood yeah
1: okay okay i that okay genuinely i was planning on saying that but i got a little scared so i went with something else
0: don't be scared don't be scared what you should be afraid of is the war against machines, helicopter, and Tough Girl all right, empty keywords are really bad. they're terrible <laughs> they're terrible Andrew wait no kayla
1: have we have we made it through every film yet?
0: No, no oh, okay. and they have nine films. I only have eight okay, Kayla. Let's give you keywords, rebellion, humanity, and peril title spoken by a character.
1: Hmm. The matrix reloaded. Nope. <laughs> okay.
0: Andrew music. Begin the run from night of the Lepus.
2: The film um it's is it original matrix it is og matrix no. yes
0: the production related fact is the opening action scene took six months of training and four days to shoot that sounds exhausting okay hayla music i never loved a man the way that i love you performed by aretha franklin think about how it's not in it? it it is in bound
1: oh okay cool
0: a very good twist on that song gives it a whole new meaning uh production was this is uh joey pants i was gonna say blanks first leading role in a film it's also his favorite role key faces are are, (laughs) our key faces words are face and toilet, evil man, and tank array and tonic. We'll have two TNTs. Okay. They only get more difficult from here, but yeah, that's okay. process of elimination. Andrew, Blank's gun makes a distinctive barking sound.
2: Stupid ascending.
0: Yes. <laughs> that, okay. That is only easy if you've seen it because Channing Tatum is playing a s- skating, skateboarding Dog. Hover, hover, rollerblading, hover rollerblading.
2: Dog, <laughs> dog, dog, man, soldier,
0: space guy. Keywords are female warrior, space battle, and swarm of bees. I, <laughs> I, I only remember the bit of the dog. Also, one of the other keywords is bad acting. <laughs> I guess they're giving to Freddie Highmore. Freddie Highmore. What's the guy's name? Eddie Red, the...
2: Redmayne. Yeah. I, I said that Eddie Redmayne, I said right the now. greatest Oscar Oscar prank in the world that year would have been somebody swapping his theory of everything uh, clip for a clip from Jupiter Ascending where he's just like alternately whispering and screaming every line. Like yes. somebody should have just swapped those out.
0: Keyword: great acting. <laughs> and then the production related is according to the directors, the script was over six hundred pages long. <laughs> what? <laughs>
2: You just know they had, like, a lore Bible, too, with, like, Absolutely. the backstory, thousands of pages of backstory.
0: Yeah, and, like, an index and maps. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, Kayla. Production-related. The star claims that this is one of the few films of his own that he likes to rewatch. This is one that you have said already.
1: Oh, okay. So... Hold on. Let me think of the ones that I've said. I've said Cloud Atlas, but I don't think that one has been an answer yet, right?
0: No, you've said it, and it's the right answer for this one. That is Tom Hanks only likes to rewatch Cloud Atlas. It's so long, he's still rewatching it. Um, no, I like that movie. I love the one thing about the Wachowskis that you will never be able to discount is how incredibly earnest they are. And yeah. that is one film about identity and time and space that is incredibly moving when it's still just like an incredibly lumbering and clunky
2: insane.
1: Well, and here's my take on it too. Why complain about something being corny or weird when the stuff that we get today is just like plain white bread?
0: And, and you're, oh my God, you're so right. Like, what would you give for a new cloud Atlas? Anything, anything, right? everything. I guess you know
2: everything. It's a, it's a really good adaptation too. Like it yeah. is, it is, it is structured completely different from the novel. Well,
0: yeah, it still works. you have to, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, the closest thing I've seen recently that's even like near what it's up to is everything, everywhere, all <laughs> at once. Yeah. Right? Like it, yeah really incredible yeah
1: i mean even even their most laughed at stuff still has so much merit so
0: so good speaking of their most laughed off stuff uh, look let me tell you the keywords are uh, futuristic city dystopia clone all right that's fine music the song is called looking for freedom written by jack white and gary cowton performed by david hasselhoff do we all have to rewatch Cloud Atlas right now? Because we don't know <laughs> what that means.
2: I, I don't even remember the maybe I don't remember the music in Cloud Atlas. I remember a lot of things about it, but I do not remember the music.
0: Maybe as we round this out, I'm about to splice in 10 <laughs> seconds of looking for freedom. Um, Andrew won. Kayla also won for going through this torture. Thank you. Love you both. <laughs> this Let's, is my least favorite game. <laughs>
2: And you're gonna keep revisiting visiting it, aren't you? That means we're gonna play it every week.
0: <laughs> All right, let's do one more thing. On. I've been
2: for
0: every episode we round out with one more thing where we tell you one thing that we've been enjoying since our last episode and we give you our socials. Andrew, let's have you go first. What's one more thing from you and where can everyone find you?
2: Yeah, um, right now I'm enjoying uh, a new indie game called Tunic that's available on Steam and Xbox Game Pass and a lot of other places. Produced by a developer, which I think is just one guy maybe and 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 some uh, with some support on the music and sound side. It's a 3D isometric top-down Legend of Zelda-esque clone about a cute little fox with a sword and a shield navigating this like fantasy world. It's sort of beautifully designed. Great sound, great visuals. A lot of people have been complaining about how hard it is, but the hardness of it is like one of the things I really, I really enjoy so far. It's a game that has no, no manual, no instructions. You have to figure it out as you play it, like how the mechanics work and so forth. It has some awesome like retro gaming touches. Like there's an in-game manual with garbled non-English words in it that you can piece together in the game. And the pictures kind of give you some vague hints about how how, they, how to do things. It's just an insanely charming game um, I literally bought an Xbox controller for my computer so that I could play this like with a with old style controls and not play it with a mouse. So that's a, that's a big recommendation. Hey good. Andrew. And how can people find you? Uh, yeah, I'm at uh, letterbox at a y at seventy six and on Twitter at Arachnophiliac. And obviously, you can also read my stuff at the lens. Heck, yeah.
0: Kayla, what about you?
1: I would say probably the uh new mario kart tracks that they released so they released eight new tracks um and i think they're planning on doing like 48 um deluxe tracks so they released the first eight and it's been really fun since i've been playing the same ones for like five or six years Years, whenever mario yeah so
0: but what, what are the new tracks? What are they like?
1: There are a lot of, like, older ones, like, from... I think there's, like, one from, like, an, uh, Nintendo 64. Um, there's some new ones. So they're just kind of, like, old and new mixed together.
0: And when you're not playing that, <laughs> where can people find you?
1: Um, You can find me on Letterboxd. It's just my name, Kayla McCullough. And, yeah.
0: Perfect. And... The one thing I've been in just here in the past couple of days, Criterion channel refreshes every month and they'll have new little mini festivals or mini marathons themes. The one that I'm in the middle of right now is Beyond Black Exploitation, where they are mm. looking at, um, sort of exploitation films that are on the fringe. So you're not going to find Shaft, but you do find the sequel Shaft Big Score. And you're not going to find Superfly, but you'll find films with actors from Superfly. So, um, while they do have one of the the big seminal films, Sweet Sweetback's badass song, Melvin Van Peebles, that's a huge blaxploitation film. In this series, they do have things like Top of the Heap, which if you've never seen is <clears throat> just this really incredible portrait about the pressures of uh, very specific pressures of black men experiences and this one this man also happens to be a policeman who was also an astronaut and goes between two women and it's a very dreamy film um but meaning there are dream sequences in it it is a wild ride another one is jd's revenge which is like a a genre film it's a horror film you know everyone is talking about these days, the sort of social horror films. Well, this is way OG social horror film where a, a black man is possessed by the ghost of a black man who is seeking revenge. Interesting. There's also two films by Larry Cohen, a filmmaker I really love, including original gangsters from 19 and that's the title. I'm not stylizing it. It's called original gangsters with Pam Greer, Jim Brown from 1996. That's the latest one in there, all on CriterionChannel.com or on uh, you know, whatever stream set box you've got. And I'm Joshua Ray. You can find me at Crispy Retinas on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. And as Andrew said, you can find all of us at cinemastlouis.org, where you can find all of our pieces at The Lens. That is it for this episode, our second in the Queer 90s series. Thank you so much, Kayla, for picking the Wachowskis bound. Next time, we are going to have a friend of ours, contributor to The Lens, associate professor in queer film at uh, Webster University. The great Kate Laura is coming on with her choice of Wong Kar-Wai's Happy Together. I'm very excited to have Kate on. Very excited to talk about Wong Kar Wai and Happy Together, and am I gonna buy the box set? Probably. You're gonna have to buy the box set. <laughs> That's it. That's the last line. You're gonna have to buy the box set.